0: Americans be trusted with gas stoves and how many more classified documents does Joe Biden have squirreled away somewhere? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, the guru David Bonson and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. If for some reason, you're not already following us on a streaming service. You can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please. Consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes if you don't like what you hear here. Please forget I said anything. So MBD, it transpired over the course of this week that they're coming for our gas stoves, although now actually they say, never mind, we're not coming for your gas stoves. But there was a memo from the Consumer Product Safety Commission, I believe, or some agency or outfit of that sort that said, geez, gas stoves are, are dangerous. They're causing uh, asthma, all other uh, potential harms. And you had folks on the left immediately snapping into line and citing and distorting various studies to to prove that gas stoves are an incredible hazard. It's amazing that we we ever put up with them. And they had to be snuffed out immediately. And then there was a backlash and they all said, never mind. Right. And, you know,
1: it was a kind of classic moral panic,
0: right? Like,
1: and and what was interesting and, and frightening was how quickly it set on. I mean, when you look backward in progressive publications, like you can find a few things about disparaging gas stoves as a potential health risk or maybe uh, a long-term project to eliminate for green reasons you know you can find a couple of those stories going back you know if you look back to 2021 or or before but all of a sudden it was like they decided gas gas stoves were not only a danger to your children and to the environment but they're also maybe racist too or any other reason to get rid of them. And, and the studies were very flimsy. Even the, the the New York Times reporting on this study ended up quoting not a scientist, but a climate activist about the dangers of gas stoves. You know, so this is not very serious. It's aimed at the gas industry, which is already subjected to all sorts of totally nonsensical restrictions and regulations. I mean, I live in New York state and if you, I have a gas hookup as as a majority of New Yorkers do, but Cuomo, Governor Cuomo made it illegal to get new gas hookups if on new construction in New York, he made it impossible for New Yorkers to access the plentiful gas that can come through to us from Pennsylvania. Because he's committed to non-carbon energy solutions. You know, we lost Indian Point. It was replaced with nothing. And now when the weather gets really cold really fast, we get warnings that there might be power outages. So this is a a huge problem. Uh, They are coming for your gas stoves. And the people who have gas stoves tend to like them. And, And they've been cooking with them safely. For over a century, in, in mostly in the bluish, bluest parts of the country, right? Like you get lots of gas stoves in New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. You don't get a lot of gas stoves in North Carolina or South Carolina, where they're, they're relatively uncommon. So I, I, I'm i hoping that they heard a lot from their own constituents on this. That actually, no, we love our gas stoves, and they're safe, and and if they're installed with proper ventilation, they're perfectly safe to operate.
0: So, David, first of all, welcome back. It's been been a little while. People who don't know, we've talked about this on the, the podcast. David, among many other things, is the host of the Capital Record podcast, another podcast in the podcast empire here at National Review. Really great content. Episode 101 is just out with Anthony Scaramucci. So, David, thanks for joining. So, David, one of the the, I mean, there are many disturbing aspects of this uh, episode over the last week. Michael hit on on one of them. There There is this distortion of the so-called science. You, you'd have these studies, some of which were kind of ridiculous. There is one that, my understanding, they, they uh, tested a, a kitchen and the gas stove effect and the gases that were released in, in harmful fumes and all this with, with a kitchen that was lined with plastic to allow like absolutely no ventilation. So if you actually read the study say, oh, okay, this is an unusual circumstance that's not going to be replicated in in real life in any way you can imagine. But then you see the headlines about the study and it's just like that fact is kind of left out. It's just like, oh, a a study found uh, disturbing uh, health effects from gas stoves. And this is why, I mean, you went through this in the, the pandemic. You couldn't believe the quote unquote science, during the pandemic, you had to dig, it in, dig into it yourself, as you did very assiduously. And you can't believe that the science about climate either, because this kind of laundering, alarmist laundering is, is obviously going on all the time. And what you just see in the headlines does not necessarily reflect a, a careful version of studies that, that themselves might be flawed.
2: Well, I, I think that's exactly right. I think, I think there's two really big problems here from their um, vantage point. There is a lack of credibility. The way in which the science is haphazard, is is choppy. We're obviously coming out of a COVID moment where they are in a huge deficit of credibility and trust to begin with, meaning the sort of expert class dealing with matters of science and and, and utility and, and so forth. And so the data itself has to be incredibly precise, incredibly clear, because there's going to be a certain skepticism. But then the second is process. Just having a sort of a bureaucrat at a commissioner make an announcement that sounds entirely authoritative and statist is the greatest way in the world to make this a culture war issue instead of a real science issue. And and I think that there are market mechanisms that are probably going to allow a big decline in the use of gas furnaces going forward. And yet they can't be content with that. Instead, they're going to make Fox News talk about defense of our gas stoves for the next two years. Mm-hmm. And, and I just don't understand it. If my agenda secretly was I really wanted less people using gas stoves, I would do everything the opposite of how they just went about handling it. So
0: are, are electric stoves preferable to gas stoves or better?
2: Do you mean from the vantage point of cooking or environmentally?
0: Well, yeah, is there just any reason we should all be using electric stoves in, instead outside of this panic we've seen?
2: I think that the better person to answer that would be someone who has actually been at a stove once in the last
0: ten
1: years. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, in in general, people who have gas stoves prefer them to the most widely available electrics but there are there is a trend at the very high end toward induction style stovetops that's right that, yeah that that a lot of people like and that have offer that's like a
0: totally flat flat smooth top one of those but,
1: yeah but, yes and it, and there's it's cooks it's very interesting because the the top of the thing you can touch it with your hand and it's 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 room temperature but Underneath your electric, underneath your electric, underneath your pot, it's it's raging hot, which is very interesting. But it's in general the the kind of electric stoves that are very common in Middle America and that are available at you know your big box stores. The most common ones, there it's harder to control the temperature with very finely on those. They they heat up slowly and they cool down more slowly than a, a gas flame. So most people. That's so why you've seen even some professional chefs in the past couple of days come out and say, like, You're,
3: you'll, you'll take away my gas stove over my dead body. Yeah, you I never mean- see a
0: cooking show, someone using
3: an electric stove on a cooking show. You're going to in about 10 minutes, though, because they're all co-opted by the same work people.
0: <laughs> so, so, Charlie, let's get you in here. I mean, there are a few stories. Uh, there's been no story, I think, since the, the uh, illegal imposition of the student loan forgiveness that has been so perfectly suited to set you
3: off. No, because I think that it is preposterous both constitutionally and politically that the federal government, the federal government, the government with the army would presume to determine which stoves one might have in one's house. But it's worse than that. This is a perfect example of a story that was developed from the top down, that started with the conclusion, and that yielded, prompted, provoked all sorts of people who had never thought about it before, to become wild-eyed activists overnight and start condescending to everyone else, as if they were revanchists holding out to the bitter end against science on which we had all agreed for half a century. You have this preposterous notion that this is the purview of the federal government being coupled with an insta-panic, with pop-up moral crusade that is based on nothing. The science is garbage. The real reason that the left wants to get rid of gas stoves is that it believes that gas stoves are bad for the climate. But that, having been there. Uh, proposal for the last two years has gone nowhere, as most climate arguments tend to do, because people don't care about it. So they moved to, this is about the children, this is about asthma, this is about race. What bothers me about this is that you could marshal any argument you want in the opposite direction with just as much consternation. Now, this isn't my view, of course, because I don't care. I don't care if you want a gas stove or a electric range, or frankly, if you want to go outside and rub two sticks together every night and build yourself a fire. It's none of my business. But there are many, many arguments against gas stoves. And there are many, many arguments against electric stoves. And really, this is just a matter of which one you want to choose. It turns out that electric stoves, which a majority of the population use, are much more likely to cause a fire They're more likely to cause a fire that kills you. They're more likely to cause a fire that injures you. They're more likely to cause a fire that burns your home down. The property damage caused by them is through the roof. You combine that with the fact that African-Americans are disproportionately likely to die in fires. And you can see quite quickly how if the left wanted to, they could have contrived a case that electric stoves are in fact racist. But they didn't want to because they decided to go after gas. So you have this massive amount of power claimed by the federal government being wielded, as David said, not even by Congress, but by a commission, and then jumped on by people who had never thought about it until yesterday, had cherry-picked the facts to support a predestined conclusion, and then expected us all to go along with it. And to make matters worse, they're now blaming The people who said no for bringing it up in the first place. No one a week ago was talking about stoves. None of the people who are now talking about stoves were talking about stoves a week ago. You get this guy, Trumka, at the Consumer Product Safety Commission, who says, yeah, a ban is on the table. He then emphasizes the same point by agreeing with a Bloomberg story that reported that a ban is on the table. And he links to a piece twice that suggested that gas stoves might be the new cigarettes and deserve a federal ban. Then, conservatives say, wait a minute, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think it's a solid proposal on the merits. And the Washington Post this morning says, wow, look at conservatives and Republicans. They've injected gas stoves into the culture war. Did they? Did they? Or were they just at home minding their own business? Were they just doing other things? And then someone in a position of authority said, we should ban gas stoves. And the entire progressive universe decided this was a good idea. Not only a good idea, but that it was imperative. And then conservatives said, I don't think that's a good idea. And now it's their fault that this is in the bloodstream. <laughs> Give me
0: a break. Yeah, no, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at the headlines on a news aggregation site right now. Washington Post, GOP thrust gas stoves, Biden's green agenda into the cultural wars. And then there's Axios, rights, new
3: fight, colon, gas stoves. It's just preposterous. It's the <laughs> equivalent of me sitting at home, seeing someone come down the driveway with an axe, saying, could you please go away? And then seeing a headline saying Charles Cook makes issue of property rights. <laughs> no, I didn't. So MBD asks a question
0: to you. Where are you? You're more disturbed that this initial effort was undertaken at all by this federal agency and its, its allies and the political and culture. Or in politics and culture, or I'm more heartened by the backlash I'm heartened by the backlash because it does seem
1: like it it's been almost killed dead in it in a matter of seventy two hours but these the, the the bureaucracy is overwhelming as far as the the amount of bad ideas it can produce, and I'm worried that it can produce. Bad ideas faster than we can kill them dead. This was one was just lucky in that a lot of people who normally vote blue are probably very attached to to their gas cookers.
0: David, more heartened or disturbed?
2: Oh, I'm no, I'm more disturbed. I think that what Michael just said is important. the The people that are most up in arms in this, I want to know how many of them went home that night and made dinner on the gas stove. It was sort of my thesis back during the Tea Party days. Is I wanted to know how many people that were up in arms, had taken a loan modification from the government. I don't believe these people. Mm -hmm. I don't believe, and I'm with Charlie entirely. You cannot have a commission constitutionally saying things like this and start the process of rebuilding credibility this was bound to happen by the way that they handled it to begin with. Yeah,
0: so actually AOC was some internet sleuth, as they say, went back and looked at one of her Instagrams from her kitchen, and sure enough, she, she herself, herself has a gas stove. Charlie, heartened or disturbed? Both.
3: I'm disturbed that this is the sort of sweeping change that progressives think that they might be able to push through on a whim. I'm heartened by the reaction to it, which probably did lead to the commission announcing that it was never looking into this in the first place. But once again, what I find so disturbing is what I have come to describe as software update progressivism, where people who had never in 10, 12, 15 years thought about a given topic suddenly receive the latest patch from HQ and start banging on about the moral necessity of prohibiting toasters. And we just saw a great example of it here once again.
0: Yeah, I, I've, obviously it has to be some of of both. I'm going to say Harton, though. I mean, the right instantly made this a, a, a big deal, H- had some great fact-based uh, arguments pushing back, especially f- including from our, our own Dominic Pino. At NR, and then had the other side saying, "Oh, we 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 never we 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 never are coming after your gas stoves. You're crazy." So that, that that's a good outcome. But the problem is there's this this big tide coming, obviously from the federal government and from the left generally. And the most disturbing aspect of it is how they can make it a, a moral issue, where there, there's something wrong with you. You know, you're you're an ill-intentioned person if you're not on board. And that's just a, a huge tide. That is really hard uh, to resist. And, and we can win sort of defensive victories like this one on certain battlefronts, but it's um figuring out how to win that broader war is a really a tough nut to crack with that. Let me do a brief plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com your way around. Our metered paywall, your way, if you log in and sign in, you got to sign in after you're a member. That's a really important step that some people miss. But if you if you sign up and, and log in, you um, see 90% fewer ads, especially the, the most obnoxious and annoying ads go away. If you're a member of NR Plus, you get invited to exclusive events and calls with our writers and editors and other conservative figures. You can be part of our private Facebook group if that floats your boat, and you can comment on articles and blog posts. It's a great deal all around, plus a really important way to support our valuable journalism. So if you are a regular reader of National Review, and I assume many of you are – and you're not already a member? Please do the right thing today, or tomorrow, or over the weekend. Exact timing doesn't matter too much, but really would love if you become a member and join tens of thousands of your fellow NR readers as a member of NR Plus. So, David Bonson, we got news the last day or so that there's a second batch, or it was a second batch of classified documents that were improperly, improperly stored at a second undisclosed location associated with Joe Biden. And uh, folks, Democrats are at pains to, White House is at pains to, to argue the exact circumstances here are different than those at Mar-a-Lago, which is true, but th- this is this is highly embarrassing, and the the more documents that are found, more places obviously, the more embarrassing it is.
2: Yeah, so rich, I love having all my news feeds and everything open on my vast uh, computer system as we're recording because I have some breaking news for you. They uh, actually have found more, and they are at the Biden residence, so uh, just moments ago as we're recording in, in Delaware in, in Wilmington, Delaware, yes, and so. So is this the second undisclosed you know, this batch, or an additional or is a batch? batch? Sure. Is, uh, uh, no, all right. And then uh, I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it? Should have some special
0: sound effect or chime every time during the uh, one of our recordings a, a new classified document is yes. passed.
2: but I don't know. Is it Rehoboth, Rehoboth? There, it's both Wilmington, Rehoboth, Rehoboth. Both. Wilmington. I used
0: to go there all the time as a kid. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Wilmington and Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Apparently, he has residences. And they found an additional batch at both of those places as well. So, you know, I obviously, I don't know, and none of us know what these documents are. I'm more than willing as a reasonably calm and nonpartisan conservative to assume that there's nothing super malignant in what it is. But I do just think optically, this is like about as bad as it could be. I, I can't imagine them being able to maintain the outrage and the sort of potency of what they've been doing in the Trump investigation with this now. And and so, you know, I loathe conspiracy theories. I have spent most of my adult life ending friendships with people who, who don't loathe conspiracy theories. And the the Epstein suicide, and now this, and now this one. Let's consider ourselves duly warned. We, uh, we will not share a conspiracy. Theories with you. We don't want to risk our friends. But but the Epstein suicide and this one can be the exceptions to the rule because there's just something about this that doesn't make sense. Now, the normal political, the conservative story of this is outrageous. They hid it for a couple months to hold, to help the midterms. That's not a conspiracy. That's, I assume, rather obvious and not that problematic. It's just, you know, I mean, I guess it's going to be upsetting to those on the right, obviously, but I'm saying it isn't a conspiracy. I just feel like, because I've maintained all along, even with Biden's kind of Q4 surge in success uh, electorally and, and and in the media and whatnot, I don't believe he will be their candidate, and I haven't believed that he can be their candidate for some time, and it sure seems to me that this is going to help that cause. And I'm sitting here in California right now, and I continue to believe that the uh, Democratic candidate in 2024... Is uh, about seven hours north of me in Newport Beach, in a town called Sacramento.
0: So I, I've been with you on on Biden. You know, I've I, I've said I, I don't think he can run, but my faith has been shaken a little bit just because he he seems so determined, and obviously got the boost from the midterms. So Charlie, couple more batches.
3: What do you make of it? What I make of it, Rich, is that it's hilarious. <laughs> That's my main takeaway here. I don't think it is particularly important. I think it is probably meaningfully different than the Trump example. Although, as I said earlier in the week, I don't think the Trump example is much different than the Hillary example. But I think that it is hilarious because we live in an age in which our politics is filtered through these sweeping moral judgments and conspiracy theories. And this just shows that, as usual, neither side of the aisle has a monopoly on morality. And most of the time, these things happen via incompetence or regular human vices rather than because of Russian handlers or secret nuclear codes or what you will. And I love the fact that we're now watching this president. Uh, suffer through so much of the nonsense that Trump did and Hillary Clinton did before him.
0: So, so Charlie, let's let's dig in a little bit on the, on the distinctions. So, you, you said if I if I heard correctly, Trump Trump isn't so different from from Hillary. So it seems to me Hillary is the worst of of the three because it was a deliberate scheme to evade. Protections for for inf- information off the bat and kind of hide stuff as she was operating in a high level government office. Trump, I think, you know, he, he took this stuff out of sloppiness and, and a, com- a combination of that and just wanting some stuff. And then it gets bad. The subsequently, when it's discovered and the government's asking for it, I think that's the main where where Trump is blame blameworthy to the to, to the highest extent. But what?
3: How, how do you parse Hillary and Trump? Well, I think in both those cases, there was some intent. Perhaps with Trump, it came at the end when he was asked to return the documents and he didn't. Whereas with Hillary, she wanted to set up her home server for convenience. She deliberately tried to circumvent the established processes. It's still possible with Biden that he took them home by mistake. He does seem to have been proactive about returning them. At the very least, it would be difficult for a court to demonstrate that he did this on purpose or that he was recalcitrant. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would have been difficult for a court to demonstrate that Hillary did what she did on purpose. You can't do that by accident. And from all we know about Trump, it would have been easy for a court to establish mens rea. Well, I do think Hillary's was the worst. And I'll reiterate that I am absolutely... Fine with the prospect of the federal government prosecuting Donald Trump for what he's done, but only if other people in a similar situation are prosecuted and Hillary already foreclosed that. So, MBD,
0: we talked about this when you weren't on earlier in the week. What is your view of how this affects any potential prosecution? of Trump as a technical matter, it seems likely, you know, they're going to go after him on obstruction or, or false representations. So technically, you could still do that if the prosecution is not really about the underlying offense. But the problem is, you really need an underlying offense to, to make it uh, compelling. And the underlying offense is not that distinguishable from from what Biden is guilty of as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, I think Trump's Situation is a little bit worse than Biden's, you know, you know, you're seeing the Biden team address this kind of forthrightly immediately contact archives when they are discovering these documents. At least, as as far as we can tell. I mean, obviously, this was kind of hidden for two months to get through the election, but they're not like continuing to stubbornly insist that these documents remain in his private residence or that he has some kind of magic wand power so i think that is all different but again to prosecute trump i mean this is a political you know there's a political hurdle beyond as well as a legal hurdle and this just makes the political hurdle more difficult to overcome and and it's just something we've seen over and over and over again with trump is that is that the there's there are always these efforts to apply the rules to Trump and that the rules are going to eject Trump and every time our political system tries to apply these rules to Trump it quickly discovers that his opponents are also not respecting these rules and usually Trump <laughs> I think it's Trump's superpower to kind of detect that these rules aren't always honored and when they're not honored by his opponents he will act he will he will dishonor them flagrantly and more flagrantly to his advantage i mean that's in a way that's how he conducted his real estate business in new york right is is that oh you know everyone does a kind of you know f- funny things on financing or with collateral well i'm he's going to push the envelope right. way beyond the normal limits and and that's that has always been part of his his key to success, or his his key to fraudulent success, if you will,
0: if you want to indict. Him. So, David, another key aspect, obviously, Joe Biden's political health is the state of the economy and and where it is. It's kind of weird. Inflation, sort of as a political issue, has almost disappeared. I mean, you d- you don't hear about it much on Fox, which I have on all day long, very much anymore. We had a new CPI number out this morning that if not mistaken, what was a 6.5 year over year. And from November to December, what down 0.1%. You have been consistent saying from the beginning, the causes of inflation aren't necessarily what a lot of uh, Republicans want them to be or have been focused on. And this this, um, story and the way it's going to develop may actually end up Helping Biden because they can argue that that was exaggerated, and the various measures they 've taken have reduced inflation, so first of all, d- discuss the cpi uh, number and then and then the broader point about inflation
2: yeah, so the, um, the CPI number did come in six point five percent year over year, and that's a pretty significant disinflation from the middle of the year when it was at nine percent, and that's the headline number that's including food and energy. The core number that excludes food and energy was uh, five and a half year over year. And the reason why I think it is largely not being talked about, because you know the inflation numbers are still higher and prices are still higher. And those are real things that people deal with. But why isn't it noteworthy subject or something that would get higher on Fox News at this point? Well, first of all, it most certainly didn't work in the midterms. There wasn't a lot of political heat around the issue as what had been expected by many on the right but also the place in which inflation is most felt by you know middle class and by uh, the masses is in gas prices and core goods and gas prices have come down significantly they ended the year lower than where they started which is a stunning. Um, situation, and based on the Biden administration's desire to blame it all on Putin, I just have to say thank you, Putin, because he must have brought prices down if he was so mm-hmm. successful. Yeah, if he had control. control, yeah. But but see, you know the joke about uh, the Biden administration can't have it both ways; they can't blame it on Putin and not credit Putin. This is sort of true for the right with Biden; we can't blame it on Biden and then not give him the credit. The fact of the matter is that neither was ever true that um, there's a whole myriad of circumstances behind behind the price inflation of 2021 and 22. I believe that there was a really great political opportunity to blame bad actors for it, but that we blamed the wrong bad actors or the wrong reason, that the COVID lockdowns were a policy disaster, and they led to a complete and, and really significant shift in our supply dynamics, labor shortages, and a number of other problems that made us inadequately prepared to produce the goods and services necessary for our economy that led to price inflation upon reopening and most certainly there's other circumstances that played in giving people a couple thousand bucks that president trump and biden both wanted to give them wasn't helpful obviously the feds policy put a lot of pressure with low cost of capital it put a lot of upward pressure in asset prices particularly in the housing market but right now rich Core goods inflation is up 2.1% year over year. That is the Fed's target, is 2%. Now, there is still higher inflation because not all prices are core goods. Services are higher, and the shelter numbers have not come out of the data yet. There is still a housing indicator that looks higher than the real-life number because they measure rents for over a year, and so the lag takes a while to come out. But that's coming out, and you're going to end up printing by the end of the year a very low inflation number. You're going to see it about a year after they pass something totally disingenuously called the Inflation Reduction Act. So what what is a what is a very low inflation number? It'll have a two or three handle by the end of the year, and 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 that, and so I think I think that the political problems are just simply that the democrats will take credit but the bigger problem to me as an economist is that the fed has been further deified which is essentially what has been going on for 25 years for most of my adult life professionally managing money is a continued evolution of this deification of the fed that began in the greenspan era and i think we have played right into the hands of saying that the fed has a power in our economy that it does not have and that's my biggest concern long term
0: so lower inflation would be would be great very very welcome where do you see the economy at the end of the year you know, there've been a lot of forecasts that towards a recession.
2: Yeah, no, I I think that it would be a real miracle. It would be a real act of luck and fortunate timing if the quote-unquote soft landing thesis really does play out. Now, it's not without precedent, okay? You had dot-com blow up in 2000, tech blow up, Silicon Valley lost a lot of jobs, and yet you really primarily had the pain in the economy, 9-11 notwithstanding That recession that the um, Bush administration endured was really quite limited and very short. And so it is very possible that you get a scenario like that, but it's still TBD because I think that it is entirely possible that um, if the Fed were to overplay their hand and credit spreads widen that you'll get enough corporate weakness in terms of business investment that what has so far been benign for the jobs market can reverse. But at this point, no one is going to call it a recession, even if unemployment goes from 3.5 to 4%. You're going to have to get a five handle on unemployment before it really feels like a recession. And I wouldn't say that that won't happen, but I do think it's possible that if it does, it proves to be shallow. So, you know, the reason I'm not giving a very specific prediction is because doing this for a living, I know that the surefire way to be wrong is to actually make a prediction.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we've learned that uh, on this podcast (laughs) over the years, especially the last several months. Charlie Cook excellent a question to you back on the classified documents. How much do the documents hurt, the discovery of these documents hurt Joe Biden from zero to 10? Zero, it's not even a flesh wound. 10, it's
3: a hole in the bow. I don't think it hurts him too much. I think it's
2: maybe one or two. MBD. Oh, Biden. I, I don't one. David Bonson hurts Biden. A two helps Trump. An eight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm a two. So we're all
0: we're all right around there. But it just makes it much harder to indict Donald Trump. So Charlie, we we did a retrospective on the McCarthy fight earlier in the the week but something we we didn't really uh, discuss at length which is which is very interesting and trying to figure out how to interact with some some other stuff going on is also really fascinating is this just return like nothing happened to a, a tea party style attitude in the republican house i mean you're seeing it play out as if it's an exact replica of what happened to John Boehner. We'll see what happens with the the debt ceiling, as again, we were discussing a couple of days ago, but e- easily could be Republican overreaching on spending. So we'd, we'd had Republican underreach and there's a lot of commentary, you know, fiscal conservatism is dead. No one cares about any of that stuff anymore. No one talks about the debt anymore. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, Republicans take the house. And that's like Besides investigations, that's like the main thing, right? That's going to be the the, the main thing. But you have a, a a new style, or at least kind of a a, a new feel to um, another important center of power in the party, which is Ron DeSantis. There's this brewing fight over this uh, progressive uh, public college in uh, Florida that uh, DeSantis is, is trying to take um, firmer control with with new appoint, appointments to the the board including most notably uh, Christopher Rufo, so DeSantis is, is you know he grew up in the Tea Party but his governorship has has taken in some respects a, a different direction we've seen this in the fight with with Disney a much more sort of culture war oriented Republican uh, party so where, where, where do you where do you see the party now Well that's
3: a huge question on a huge topic. I don't draw a bright line. Between social issues and economic issues as relates as related to the tea party in in quite the way some others do because I think that we have a different set of social issues now Mm-hmm. so you know, while it was true that the tea party was mostly interested in fiscal matters, there was still a great deal of populist energy underneath it. And while that didn't map... And and, and a focus on education, too. Right. And while that didn't map particularly neatly to, say, gay marriage, it did map pretty neatly to education and many of the issues that are now being debated relate to education. The, The other element that has popped up far more dramatically in the... 2020s, then in the 2010s, is the founding. We had the 1619 Project. We have had the removal of statues, not just of Confederate traitors, but of the founders themselves. The Thomas Jefferson statue was removed in New York. And if that had happened during the time of the Tea Party, when people were reciting the Constitution and wearing tricorner hats and so on, you would have seen a remarkable pushback against it. I think it would have been folded in to the upset, so I'm not sure it's quite true as some people have suggested that the Republican Party is now interested in different things.
0: Yeah. So, so let me um put a finer point on it then. So, so the the Disney thing, which which you were quite critical of, and and your take on that is just it's a standard conservatarian take right that uh, the, and it would have been the take of many more people circa 2010 but there's this feeling private corporations beholden to this woke I- ideology are a threat not just government and we need to use government power when we have it to fight back that's the new
3: yes th- that's the new idea it's the only wrinkle i would add and i don't believe this myself i am and was and i expect will be. Critical of what DeSantis did there. I think it was pretextual. I think it was political payback. And I also think that it is destined to make the policy worse. But look at how it was sold. It was sold as taking away a special perk. And in that regard, what DeSantis did, I think dishonestly, was recruit the language of the Tea Party into a bigger government move. and That was my criticism at the time. DeSantis said, we're getting rid of the special perk. The problem is, of course, they did it only for Disney. They phrased it in such a way as to avoid a bill of attainder. They said any special district that was granted between 1967 and 1969. All right, well, there were six of them. The only one that really matters is Disney. But all the pushback that I got was from people who presumed that I was arguing in favor of special corporate perks. Now, I think it's just wildly dishonest. We all know what happened here. DeSantis signed a bill that I think was fine. That bill was nationalized. People gave it a false name, said false things about it, and called DeSantis and Floridians in the Florida State Legislature, and a majority of Floridians, including Democrats, bigots, and so on and so forth. DeSantis got across. He said, I don't like being criticized by Disney. I'm going to put you in your box. And this is a way of doing it. But the way he did it was not to raise their taxes. Uh, the way he did it was not to increase regulation. The way he did it was to give the people who supported it the chance to cast those who opposed it as cronies. So there is still a Tea Party element in there, even if it's dishonest.
0: So so, so if I hear hear you correctly, if I summarize it, Simplify it. Different uh, circumstances, different emphases, but not, you know, we're not talking about a totally different phenomenon. MBD, you buy that?
1: I think that's part of the answer. I think another part of the answer for the contrast between Congress and some of GOP governors, um, among whom I would include Montana's governor, Greg Gianforte, as well as DeSantis, is that, you know, Greg Gianforte and Ron DeSantis are sitting on Growing state economies, fantastic growth, huge surpluses, partly due to COVID relief, and the Congress is sitting on like record debts and deficits, and, and so I do think that there you approach politics a little bit differently, and, and it's almost like a, a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once you know, once Florida's economy is booming, there are other priorities that you might begin to focus on whether that's you know curriculum in education or other cultural fights and you're seeing that in in montana too which has had phenomenal growth and republicans there are looking at you know bolder constitutional reforms of the state constitution so yeah i think and i think that's natural and potentially even healthy you know and i and i'm not i'm not entirely convinced i mean It's very natural for the House Republican Caucus to revert to, you know, fiscal jihadis when the White House is in the hands of the Democrats. Uh, That's a very natural way of trying to restrain the growth of government. But at the same time, you know, I see, you know, the House Republicans overwhelmingly endorsed this. The new committee, special committee on China, and it got overwhelming Democratic support too. And in, I, I don't see the House Republicans, you know, damning Biden for what he's doing on microchips with China. You know, there's there's no one coming out and saying, "Hey, you know, the Chinese just have this Ricardian advantage on on microchips, and it's just a uh, big government picking winners and losers to encourage Taiwanese capital to come to Arizona and build a chip factory here." like, I don't see any of that. So I do think there's still an underlying change that is happening. I think it's being driven by geopolitical, uh, the the change of the way Republicans view China as a geopolitical rival now, as much as a, tr- as a trade partner. So it, you know, it's a little complexion of both. I mean, there's, there's the natural fiscal hawk instincts that are have not gone away and should not go away and and they they were bound to be revived during an era of inflation, but the party has still changed, and our political culture was still changed by trump and and in fact the the Democrats were changed by Trump and how he pushed things on china
2: david well I, I think by the way, on that last point that michael's made he's right you you do see an evolution, a shift. And, and the China sentiment and in the way in which a lot of these things are discussed. And I think there's a lot of good in that and, and some things that concern me. The the notion of no one making a sort of Ricardian argument against Chinese control of microchips could be a, a good thing in the sense that it's now a more holistic conversation around national security interest and, and other complexities in global trade. And it also could just be that none of the more depth oriented things are necessary because the politics are so simple. Uh, I think it was, Michael, 150 Democrats or so that voted with all of the Republicans in in creating this committee. And so the Democrats are well aware that a even sort of non-intellectual opposition to China is the right thing politically. I am just a stickler for the fact that I prefer we do the right thing for the right reasons. Because when we do the right thing for the wrong reasons, it's just a matter of time until something ends up going against us and, and us living to regret it. I have a similar feeling about what Charlie was talking about regarding Governor DeSantis and and the Disney action. I think in, the, in a lot of ways, you did the right thing. And I'm all for finding various crony deals that have been done that need to be undone. But the pretext of that was just so obvious that I worry it ends up being a blunt instrument used against us in the future and I love the idea of taking away crony special deals that have been done for large entrenched entities when we're not in the middle of a culture fight with them you know so so as to not give prima facie support to the idea that the left can do the same to us but I certainly understand the politics of all these things and um, all, all of it is just playing out the way you'd expect in the midst of the tribal nature of both the culture war and our political scene. So David, how
0: do you forecast the uh, the fiscal fight in Congress going, especially the fight over raising the debt
2: ceiling? I think it's going to be a disaster, and I think it's going to be really unfortunate that it will be a distraction against the real fight because those of us who are favor uh, who favor a balanced budget amendment, Those of us who believe, um, last I checked, this is very easily solvable for those in Congress who do not want to spend more money than we bring in. And it is not about refusing to lift the debt ceiling. It's about refusing to approve the appropriations of funds that create the need for enhanced debt. And so this is the height of hypocrisy. And the left's argument against us is the right one. If you don't want to spend that money, then don't spend the money. Don't approve the budget. But to then say we're going to approve a budget and then not approve the debt that is necessary to pay for the budget we approved is completely performative and has never worked to our favor politically. And so I think that this, the, the difference this time, uh, as we'll see later in the year, is that the numbers and the makeup of the House are such that unlike the last four or five times we've had this fight, it's actually there's some muscle. They might actually get their way. And it's not going to go well, it will not it will not be a good look, and that's not because so
0: so, so you're you're saying that you you would expect there not to be the votes to to uh, raise the debt ceiling it wouldn't not the first you.
2: time around, no, I think it'll end up being another drawn out three or four week drama
0: and then how how consequential is that with regard to the economy
2: well the what the media will say or the real economy I mean the media is going to say we're going to default on our debt and we're not going to default on our debt, and the media is going to say social security checks aren't going out, and that is not true. So there will be a certain level of hype that is going to be near a 10, and the real impact to the economy will be very low, and then the damage to the Republican brand will be quite hard.
0: Yeah, so that's a segue to the exit question I wanted to ask, starting with you, Charlie. Fiscal conservatism will be healthier and stronger at the end of this Congress, yes or no?
3: No. There's no appetite for it.
1: MBD. No, because I, th- I think the debt ceiling fight will be a debacle reputationally, too, for the fiscal cons. David, you're you're a no, I assume.
0: Yeah, definitely a no. Uh, I'm also a no. Unfortunately, you know, maybe there's some way this cycle can be broken. But I think the most likely outcome is that politically, the debt ceiling fight ends up being a, a debacle. And then Republicans kind of give in and, and just just do more spending again. and And, and there we go. So let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, very impressively, you played a game of pickup basketball. <laughs>
1: it's not that not that impressive.
0: Uh just the very act of pickup basketball is impressive.
1: I have all four limbs. No, just um, we uh, no, just at the school my kids go to, the the dads have formed a a fathers group, and we met for the first time last night and had. An energetic, but probably to anyone else's eyes, very embarrassing <laughs> looking game of 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 basketball between us. But yeah, it was it was actually great fun to meet a bunch of guys and get a little workout in.
0: So uh, the last time I played anything that could be defined as a serious, uh, semi serious pickup basketball, I don't know. This must have been ten years ago or so. It was before NR moved into its its new offices, and we weren't too. We were on Lexington Avenue, not too far away from a, a playground. And one of our, uh, staff writers brought a basketball and says, Hey, let's, let's go down to the court. So, so we did it. We, e- we ended up, you know, the three or four of us, whoever it was playing a couple junior high school kids who just wiped us out. I mean, they're so fast, they're so fast. And I, I was limping, you know, just limping around for, for days afterwards. Cause I was, I was so, so sore. So David Bonson, you have an, an engaged and at least a, a somewhat less physically taxing activity of watching the Bernie Madoff documentary on Netflix?
2: Yes, my uh, NR friends would be surprised to know that I played more pickup basketball in high school in my early 20s than uh, probably anyone you've ever met. And ever since I blew my knee up, I am uh, mm. not able to do that, but my knee and ACL are not needed to watch Netflix. So I've gotten very good mm-hmm. at documentary viewing. And uh, I'll tell you, this new little four-part series on Netflix about, about Madoff is really quite well done. There's, I was fearful that it would be just sort of redundant to a lot of other work that has been done on Madoff. And that whole scandal now and so forth is over 14 years old. But there was a lot of new information. It was really well put together. I'm going to have a big article about it in uh, my own DividendCafe.com uh, coming out on Friday. But... The Netflix documentary world is pretty frustrating for those of us on the right. There's a lot of real kind of left-wing nonsense, and, and yet this was a reasonably apolitical story that just got to the human nature of it. Uh, this was a scandal that didn't happen because of bad regulation, and it didn't happen because of evil, greedy capitalists. It happened because a whole lot of people believed what they wanted to believe instead of what reason and ethics would have caused them to believe.
0: So, is is Bernie Madoff? Do you find him inherently a fascinating figure?
2: I, you know, it's funny. I don't. I find his investors fascinating figures because I've always been convinced that a significant portion of the victims were really culprits, and and I'm more convinced because, they, because they they knew or should have known uh, most of. I think a high portion of them absolutely knew. Yes,
0: and and they were just at the top of the scheme. What's what's it's better being at the top, right, the, of a Ponzi scheme? So so sort of working for them and they, they didn't care, it, others coming in.
2: Yeah, and it's also better to have a bigger checkbook than the Ponzi scheme itself has so that you can be in a position to constantly write checks when the Ponzi scheme needs them because then you can keep the Ponzi going. And and so even though you end up having more risk, you you really can kind of create a self-fulfilling prophecy that you will continue to get the ill-gotten gains. And that's what was happening with some of his lead investors as they were feeding the crime as it was going. All right. So
0: so listeners, there's the investment by, advice from David Bonson. Get it early big on the Ponzi schemes.
1: <laughs> Can I ask a question about that, yeah. David? So the benefit would be then your net, your assets on paper continue to grow at this Ponzi scheme, scheme uh, speed. And so, therefore, you can borrow and, and build new businesses off of capital you don't really have,
2: right? Well, no, yeah. because the, the lead investors were taking money out all the time, so it wasn't just on paper. They were taking real money out. Oh. They just needed to be available to put real money back in at those points in which cyclically withdrawal requests were greater than new monies coming in, right? That's always the only oh. thing that can hurt a Ponzi is that point when there's more money coming out than in. But if you stand available as a sort of lender of last resort, then you can keep it going. But it's a unique Ponzi scheme because remember, most Ponzi's did have real investments. At some point, they had investments that went bad and then it turned to Ponzi. He never bought a share of stock. There was never any real investments in this at all. And so it required an awful lot of cash flow. And then ultimately, the biggest investor... Made seven billion dollars off of one billion of capital, net net net. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're definitely right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When Rich <laughs> yeah. says to listeners that this is David Bonson giving this advice, I should be worried that the SEC will launch an investigation of <laughs> me. But I'm assured <laughs> that the SEC is too underfunded to do so. <laughs>
0: So, Charlie, you enjoy picking up your kids from school when they're not expecting it.
2: Yeah, I
3: love it because they're shocked and they don't quite know how to react. And then they point at me and you can see, because you can't hear through the window, but you can see them saying, that's my dad. And they get in the car, what are you doing here? It's sort of funny. But uh, I've started doing it so much that I guess I'm going to lose the advantage of surprising them because they'll say, oh, God, it's you again.
0: So I finished a couple weeks ago. Maybe it was uh, over the holidays or a little bit before. I've been going through, as I've mentioned several times, a Middle Ages phase, and I read this book by a guy named Mark Morris, "The Anglo-Saxons: A History of the Beginnings of England, 400 to 1066." and And I have to say, King King Alfred is just clearly top three English monarchs of of all time. I think just zero doubt about it anyone wants to have that argument of a beer sometime i would welcome it with that it's time for our editor's picks mbd what's your pick my pick is charlie
1: on the uh gas stoves panic and the and the weirdly tired tone that progressives took on this i just thought charlie was withering and at his best david bonson
2: you know, Jim Garrity has a, a piece up that uh, it sort of mirrors the sentiment that's been coming. I, I've written a little stuff in this regard. Jonah over Dispatch has done some. And I think all of us feel this way, but it's just a great piece from Jim about uh, the way the people were electing to Congress and this notion of lazy, narcissistic is, is in his headline types of people. And I think that this has got to be a big theme for those of us on the right, not just merely the votes we want out of people that go to Congress, but that the voters have to take more seriously their responsibility to elect more serious people. Charlie Cook?
3: Well, I'm just going to choose Andy McCarthy again because he has walked me through the latest on classified documents and insert political figure here, this time Joe Biden, describing the differences between the cases and the likely effect on the law and the politics and so on. I don't know what I would do without Andy's coverage. So I mentioned
0: Dominic Pino earlier with regard to gas stove stuff. So I'm going to pick all the stuff he did on the gas stoves. It was a great one-two punch between Dominic and Charlie on gas stoves. I should also mention we have a email that you can, um, if you have exit questions you want to suggest, you want to mention anything you like or don't like on the podcast, whatever, feel free to email editorspod. That's editorspod at nationalreview.com. It'd be great to hear from you. And that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express written permission of National You magazine is strictly prohibited. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks, David. Thanks to MBD. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.